Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McCrae, and this is the second of two bonus episodes on the opioid crisis. This podcast is brought to you by the Opioid Conference, held each year as part of Mayo Clinic's continuing medical education. For more information on all opioid episodes available for credit, visit ce.mayo.edu slash opioidpc. Today we are showcasing Dr. Molly Feely, a consultant in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester. She will be sharing best practices for management of opioid side effects. I'm going to spend a little time talking about opioid side effects, and I have no financial relationships with anybody. I am going to talk about a number of off-label uses of medications, and I'll talk about that as I go along. There's a lot of side effects related to opioid pain medications, and pointing out the fact that we're really only going to talk about four of them today. And what we're going to try to talk about our objectives are recognizing which opiate side effects are typically transient and which are more pervasive, to talk about management options for each opioid side effect discussed, and distinguish when to rotate to a different opioid versus when to just treat through the symptom. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to have a case, and then we're going to talk about the principles related to that opioid side effect, talk about some tips in managing that opioid side effect, and then we'll have some take-home points and we'll do that for each side effect we talk about. We're talking about constipation first, and this is an actual patient I took care of. It's probably been about two years now, but she was 37 years old. She had widely metastatic breast cancer to the bones, and she, when she presented to my office, she had had no bowel movement in the last eight days, and she was miserable. She was so miserable that she actually quit taking all of her opioid pain medications a couple days prior to coming to my office. And that's significant. She took off her 75 microgram fentanyl patch and she stopped all of her oral hydromorphone. She did have a bowel regimen at home. She had uh, docusate 100 milligrams as needed twice a day. She had melchomagnesia 30 cc's three times a day as needed and Miralax 17 grams in water daily as needed. So my question is, in addition to a successful enema in the office, which of the following would be the next best step in managing her constipation? Adding sorbitol, 30 cc's, PO, BID, PRN, adding a scheduled fiber supplement, adding a scheduled stimulant laxative, or adding methyl naltrexone. I agree with stimulant laxative, We'll talk in a minute about why I think um, that's a better answer than methyl naltrexone. So managing opioid-induced constipation. Opioid-induced constipation is almost universal with scheduled opioids. Almost everybody gets it, so you really do need to anticipate it. And tolerance does not develop to opioid-induced constipation. You go up on the dose, the constipation gets worse. It doesn't get better, the body doesn't get used to it, the bowel does not get used to it over time. And for patients who are on scheduled opioids, they really ought to be on a scheduled stimulant laxative. This is a suggested regimen. It is not the only regimen out there, but this is typically what I do. And I'll point out a couple of things about managing opioid-induced constipation. First of all, I would actually cross out docusate 
Um, there's actually several very good placebo-controlled, double-blind studies that really show docusate is no better than placebo in any patient population. Whether they have serious illness or whether they're healthy, this drug does not work very well. And then I'll point out that you max out one drug before you add another drug. If you go back to what my patient was taking, she was taking PRN, docusate, PRN, milk of magnesia, and PRN, Miralax. And what that amounts to in a day is she takes the docusate, it doesn't work, so four hours later she takes a dose of milk of mag, that doesn't work, so four hours after that she takes Miralax, and she's essentially taken one dose of three drugs a day, which is very low dose. So max out one drug first, and then you start adding and you get to methyl naltrexone because methyl naltrexone is something that's indicated if you've maxed out a good bowel regimen. Schedule your laxatives and then adjust accordingly. If their stools are too loose, back off, but schedule them, don't give them PRN. How do they know whether they should take the milk of mag or the Miralax or the docusate? So fiber isn't really helpful in opioid-induced constipation. In the words of one of my esteemed colleagues, Opioids turn your stool to concrete. Adding fiber just gives you fibrous concrete. Not that I'm anti-fiber. Fiber is lovely, it just does not work for this. And consider a peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonist if you've maxed out a bowel regimen and you aren't getting very far and you've ruled out a bowel obstruction. So what are these peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists? Well, we're gonna talk about methyl naltrexone first. It is the first one that came out. It first came out in a sub-Q form, and what it is is it's a mu opioid receptor antagonist that does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So it reverses the effect of opioids on the mu receptor in the periphery, but not in the central nervous system. So it blocks the opioid effect on the gut, inducing laxation, without reversing the pain control within the central nervous system. And it is highly effective. If you have the right diagnosis and the patient has opioid-induced constipation and you give this and it doesn't work and you give a second dose the next day and it doesn't work, question your diagnosis. It is that effective for opioid-induced constipation. But it ain't cheap. It's about $100 a dose and it's dosed based on weight. They do have an oral methyl naltrexone now. The FDA indication for the oral methyl naltrexone pill is only for non-cancer related pain. Um, bowel obstruction is still an absolute contraindication, and it is also highly effective for opioid-induced constipation. It is 400, the dose is 450 milligrams a day, and it comes as a 150 milligram pill, so that's three tablets once a day, and it's about $1,500 a month for a one-month supply, so it is very expensive. Naloxigol also is an oral peripheral acting mu opioid receptor antagonist. This is a pegylated derivative of naloxone so that it acts peripherally without crossing the blood-brain barrier. It is also highly effective for opioid-induced con constipation if you have the right diagnosis. Very rare episodes of opiate withdrawal, pre predominantly with methadone patients. Some GI side effects uh, early on within the first few days, again, primarily in patients on methadone. Uh, the downside of the naloxagol is that it has multiple drug interactions that you really have to make sure that you're not interacting with other drugs. It comes as a low dose and a high dose, and it's only about $330 a month. 
Here's just a chart comparing them, and I would just point out that for advanced illness or cancer pain, the subcutaneous methylnaltrexone is the only one that's FDA indicated for opioid-induced constipation. Um, I would keep your eyes and ears open because I suspect in the coming months and years, we're gonna hear more and more about the oral products and their safety and use in patients with cancer or uh, serious illness. So keep your eyes peeled. Bowel obstruction is a contraindication for all of them. All of them have only have safety profiles going out about a year. Certainly that data will trick in, trickle in over time of safety beyond a year, but that's something to consider. And then the cost as noted. And all of them, if you have a bowel wall that has integrity issues, such as a cancer growing through it, you can run the risk of perforation in those bowels. So that's something to think about as well. That is a very rare but catastrophic complication. And this is kind of how I think about using it in uh, an algorithm where if they have advanced illness or cancer, I'm going straight to the sub-Q. If they have non-cancer pain, my question is, do we have hepatic failure or drug interactions? If we do, I'm going um, to oral methylnaltrexone. If we don't have that, you can use either one. So my take-home points for opioid-induced constipation is that it's virtually universal in patients on scheduled opioids. No tolerance develops over time. If you're gonna have someone on scheduled opioids, you should really have them on a scheduled stimulant laxative. Fiber is a no-no for these patients. And consider a peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonist if you've maxed out a bowel regimen and you've ruled out bowel obstruction. And the role of the oral opioid antagonist in advanced illness as cancer is probably evolving and we're probably gonna see more and more about that. Nausea. This is a young 18-year-old woman who really has horrific systemic lupus erythematosus, and she has a severe destructive arthritis related to her lupus, and that severe joint pain really limits her mobility and her functionality. In addition to that, she has multi-organ dysfunction due to her lupus, and she does have a limited life expectancy because of the severe progressive disease that she has. So you elect to start her on hydromorphone, two milligrams PO, Q4 hours PRN for her pain, hoping to improve her function as she has failed all other adjuvant therapies. And 24 hours later, she tells you she's miserable with nausea and vomiting and cannot take this medication. Alternative etiologies of nausea have been ruled out. So what is the next best step to manage her nausea? Opiate rotate her to fentanyl, switch her to IV hydromorphone, add scheduled procorperazine, which is compazine, add PRN on dancitron, which is Zofran. All right, well, I'm gonna try and convince you that adding scheduled procorperazine is actually the right answer here. So opioid-induced nausea is not rare. It's not as common as we worry about, but it's not rare. Depending on what study you look at, it's somewhere between 15 and 40% of patients. There are multiple mechanisms by which opioids cause nausea. Obviously, gut inertia and constipation is one of the big ones. It can affect the vestibular function and give nausea that way, but by far the most common way that opioids induce nausea is through the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Here's the kicker, though. Nausea from opioids, patients develop tolerance to it, and it goes away in about 90% of patients in three to seven days if you just wait long enough. In almost everybody, the nausea goes away. 
Anti-dopaminergic agents are first line for opioid-induced nausea and vomiting, and the reason for that is for nausea that is relayed through the chemoreceptor trigger zone, that's either a dopaminergic or a serotonergic phenomenon, and you simply, simply need to know the piece of trivia that opioids that go through there is a dopaminergic phenomenon more than a serotonergic phenomenon. And there's little evidence to support the use of one opioid over another, meaning that all of the opioids induce nausea at equal rates. Therefore, if you switch opioids on day one, all you've done is reset the clock at zero, and they're likely to get nausea from that opioid as well. So the key here is try not to switch the opioids until three to seven days. And this is where I try to treat through the nausea for three to seven days. If we're seven days out and we're still struggling with nausea, then I switch to a different drug. There was a study that came out about a year ago that showed that tapandolol had significantly less GI side effects than oxycodone. And that's the first study that's really showed one opioid to be better than another, and it had less constipation and less nausea related to it. So I have to put a little asterisk there. It's a single study. It's only compared it to oxycodone. But it is something to think about and watch for if you have someone who has a really, really touchy gut. So my take-home points for nausea and vomiting are address alternative sources of nausea. Try to avoid opioid rotation in the first five to seven days. Try to treat through for five to seven days. Antidopaminergic agents are first line, and, and I schedule them. If, through that first five to seven days, and then I taper them off. And consider tapandolol if you have someone who has a really, really touchy gut that you need to use someone, use it for if in the right situation. Sedation related to opioids. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, Dr. Molly Feely speaks at the annual Mayo Clinic Opioid Conference. Mayo Clinic offers hundreds of continuing medical education conferences worldwide. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today for the Mayo Clinic Opioid Conference. So this is one of my favorite patients that I've ever cared for in my career. He's 50 years old and he is in remission from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Unfortunately, he had pretty bad chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy for which he has been on chronic opioids because he has failed trials of everything else. And when I mean failed, he got horrible edema from gabapentin and so I switched him to pregabalin. He got horrible edema from pregabalin that I tried to treat through with Lasix and compression garments. That did not work. So I put him on carbamazepine. The carbamazepine, I successfully drove his sodium down to 108, a personal record for me at the time. So I put him on tapiramate. If, anybody, if you've ever seen the issues with concentra concentration and memory with tapiramate, he got that, couldn't remember anything. So I put him on lamotrigine. I don't know if any of you have had the luxury of inducing the lamotrigine rash in one of your patients. I'm here to tell you it is horrible, horrible rash. And so in the end, I put him on tricyclics, and we literally had to shock him out of VTAC from the tricyclics. So he was on opiates, and he had failed all of the opiates, including methadone, until I had him on a fentanyl patch. He was long-time stable dose. He had no aberrant behavior. The issue was that the same with the fentanyl patch that he'd had with all of the other opioids is that they made him really sleepy. And it was interfering with his ability to do his job at work. And his only medication that he was on was a 25 microgram fentanyl patch every other day. So what's the next best step to help with this guy's somnolence? Add modafinil 
which is provigil. Tell him he can't be on opioids anymore because he doesn't have cancer-related pain. Tell him he should quit his job and go on disability or start him on an SSRI. I agree with Ad Modafinil. He actually had multiple people telling him he should quit his job and go on disability because of this issue. And I just think that would be a disaster for this 50-year-old 50, 50 guy. So sedation related to opioids. It's not uncommon, but it's almost always transient, and it usually goes away in a couple of days. If it doesn't go away, what else is going on? What else are you missing? Is there sleep apnea? What other drug got added? Nine times out of 10, it's a benzodiazepine or a muscle relaxer. But what else is going on that's driving the sedation if it doesn't go away in two to three days? And really, step three is really what else is going on? Is this person hypogonadal from the opioids? Are there alternative drugs other than the opioids? Can you switch them to a non-opioid medication? Um, I think we definitively gave that our very best shot with this patient. Uh, opioid, is opioid rotation an option? What else can we do? Because the last thing is to add a stimulant medication. And as both a family doc and a general internist, I hate treating the side effect of one drug with another drug. But this is a case in a rare situation where I would consider doing it with a stimulant medication. The two stimulants out there that we use are methylphenidate or Ritalin or modafinil and provigil. They really have very similar side effect profiles with some anxiety, some tremulousness, some cardiac dysrhythmia that is usually atrial in nature, usually but not always, insomnia, and Anorexia is listed by a side effect. I will tell you, I've never seen that in an adult yet. I've never seen an adult who had had significant problems with that yet. The tips that I would say is don't give the second dose after 2 p.m. or they're not going to sleep. So I usually dose it at 8 and noon or 8 and 2, but I won't go, but I try not to give it after 2 o'clock. Uh, methylphenidate is twice a day. I usually use modafinil once a day, it's a little bit longer acting. So my sedation take-home points are it's usually transient. Try to wait a couple days. It almost always gets better and go away. If it doesn't get better and go away, I really, really look hard to try and figure out what else is going on. And I would use stimulants as, an, as a last resort and only in the right patient. Paritis. So this is a 24-year-old young man who was admitted to the hospital with a tib-fib fracture one night, planning to go to the operating room the next morning to have a rod put in his leg. Uh, upon admission to the hospital, he had reported allergies to morphine, codeine, oxycodone, and hydrocodone. Now, why a 24-year-old has had exposure to morphine, codeine, oxycodone, and hydrocodone would probably have been a good thing for me to ask at the time. I didn't. He complains of pain, and his pain is uncontrolled by non-opioid regimens. So I ordered PO hydromorphone for his pain and he almost immediately started itching. His exam showed no rash. So how would you manage his itching? Switch him to IV hydromorphone, add PRN diphenhydramine, schedule loratadine, switch him to nelbufine. I'm gonna try and convince you that actually switching him to nelbufine is probably the best answer here. So opioid-induced paritis. So first of all, paritis is not an allergy. You can have an allergy to opioids, but a true opioid allergy usually presents as hives or anaphylaxis, and it's very impressive and not very subtle. The paritis and the itching that people get from opioids that is more common is actually not an allergy. Um, it is common, and it is far more common 
with intrathecal or axial opioids than it is with systemic opioids, and it is not a histamine-related phenomenon. It is true that opioids cause mast cell release, but it is not mast cell release or histamine-related that causes the itching that people get with opioids. So please, quit snowing these people with Benadryl. It, they do sleep and they quit complaining because they're schnockered, but they wake up itching. Unfortunately, there is very little data on how to manage the itching outside of the intrathecal administration, which makes it challenging, and management is largely based on expert opinion. So these are my tips for opioid-induced pruritus. So for reasons we don't understand, hydromorphone, fentanyl, oxymorphone, and tramadol seem to have less itching associated with them. So that is always my first step. If they're on oxycodone or hydrocodone or morphine and I have the opportunity to opiate rotate them, these drugs might cause less itching and some patients will tolerate them much better. Oral or IV makes no difference. Naloxone is indeed really, really effective for getting rid of the opioid-induced itching. The problem is it also reverses their pain control, and so that doesn't really help you much in the practical management of these patients. Partial opioid agonists such as uh, nalbufane or butorphanol, butorphanol is statol, nalbufane is nubane, seem to really reduce itching a lot. These studies have mostly been done in patients on intrathecal opioids, so their pain is being managed by their intrathecal pump, and they're given small doses of these opioids solely to manage the itching, not to manage the pain. So how you manage this in someone like my patient who is having it based on systemic, and how you use these medicines to treat both pain and itching is less clear. I will tell you with my guy, I went with Nubane because I was somewhat familiar with it and using it in pregnant women. It was a very interesting 20-minute conversation with the nighttime pharmacist trying to convince him that my 24-year-old man, I did, was indeed ordering Nubane for my 24-year-old man, and he, no, he was not pregnant, but I eventually got it up. We used it for his pain, and it worked beautifully for both his pain and his itching. If this is a mu receptor, phenomenon, if the itching is actually caused by a mu receptor phenomenon, how about these peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists? Well, in fact, there are a couple studies out there now uh, looking at managing itching with methyl naltrexone, and disappointingly, it hasn't worked in any of them. Um, there's a reasonably good double-blind placebo-controlled trial of 72 patients that had no, no benefit over placebo. That probably suggests that this is more a central phenomenon than a peripheral phenomenon, and that makes sense based on that we see the itching more common in intrathecal and axial opioids. And the other thing is there might be a serotonin component to this because the serotonin blockers seem to help the itching. There is not good data for this, but using ondansetron, which is a serotonergic blocker, or mirtazapine, in some studies have shown some benefit in managing itching. I had a cancer patient on high doses of oxymorphone who had terrible itching, and we put him on scheduled ondansetron four times a day, and it didn't eliminate the itching, but it, made, it decreased it enough to make it tolerable for him to continue therapy. So my take-home points, it's not histamine. Please stop the Benadryl. Uh, consider a partial agonist drug, if that's an option, and possibly consider ondansetron or mirtazapine uh, if, if, uh, as, a, as a management tool. So Dr. Feely, I have a few specific questions about side effects for you. So 
What do you think about the person who's on scheduled chronic narcotics who denies they ever have any constipation? Are they full of it? I, I had one patient who had chronic diarrhea who getting on chronic opioids for her calciflaxis was the best thing that ever happened to her. And I had her on nothing for laxatives because the opioids solved her chronic diarrhea. So it can happen, but it is few and far between. And then how would you handle a patient who develops extrapyramidal symptoms on the procopyrazine that you're using to treat their non- I would put them on something that's not a dopaminergic blocker. You'd, you'd have to go to something else because that's a side effect of all dopaminergic antagonist drugs. And so you're, you're going to have to go to uh, ondansetron or something else. We've had a couple questions throughout the morning about hypogonadism as a side effect. And is that resolved simply by removing the opioid or is there ever a role for, for example, testosterone treatment? It is actually resolved with getting them off the opioids. The hypogonadism goes away. Allah, the woman who got pregnant as her dose came down. So the ideal situation would be to get them off the opioids. If, they, if their disease is such that getting them off the opioids is not an option, treating them with testosterone is effective. What's the rationale for changing Q2 to days? And then um, would ketamine be an alternative to fentanyl when you're thinking about perioperative use? perioperative pain control. Fentanyl patches are work every third day for about 98 to 99% of people. And then there are some people who are simply faster metabolizers and they will see the dose will wear off on that third day and they'll come in and say, I'm great except that third day is horrible. And so in those patients going to an every other day fentanyl at the same dose is very effective. I've seen that predominantly in people who are profoundly cachectic in my hospice patients at the very end of life. But I've, the other place where I've seen it is in real young people. Do you think that there's an opioid that causes less delirium in our elderly patients? Is there one that you would choose over another? No, and it's not tramadol. They all have equal, uh, equal delirium. We've been talking about management of opioid side effects with Dr. Molly Feely, a consultant in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Remember, if you enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks, please subscribe and share with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition, go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid ec.